Psalms just began that last week, a study uh, through it. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just flag them, they'll put one in your hand, mark right to the passage we're studying uh, this morning. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. Four verses, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he, that is God, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. And I'd also like to praise a body. Uh, many of you know if you're on the Calvary Connect prayer team, but very dear brother Don Tyson was involved in a serious motorcycle accident in the Santa Rosa area this uh, week, and we just need to lift him up this morning. So let's do that now. Lord, we thank you for Don and his life and how it's impacted us through the years. And now as he is in that hospital with tremendous in injuries and in great need of uh, not merely the medical attention that he's getting, Lord, but a touch by your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, we reach out on Don's behalf to the hem of your garment and we pass, ask that in your grace would you would just bestow upon him miraculous healing into the injuries within his body. We pray that you would touch him and continue to meet with him in the realm of the Spirit in his life and that you administer not only to his physical needs, but emotional and mental needs as well, his spiritual needs as well. We pray for Maggie and the kids, and Lord, you're the only one that's bigger than what they're facing, and we ask that whatever they need you to be in ways maybe for the first time in their lives, just specifically related to what they are facing here with Don's situation, that you would be that. We pray that you would do as you promised, exceeding abundantly above all that they could ask or think in the midst of their multifaceted need. Pray for your grace to just abound toward the entire situation, the entire family, Lord. We honor you with our faith in it. We thank you for your Bible. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the four verses that we're going to study this morning. We thank you that they come from your throne with an intention behind them to do something very, very good and very important in each one of our lives. We ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to accomplish that in each of our lives as well. And we ask those thing, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Concerning the book of Romans, it is almost universally agreed that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome from the city of Corinth while he wintered uh, there during his third missionary journey. All of this is described, that journey and his winter in Corinth in Acts chapter 20. The book of Romans is a treatise on the gospel. It is a a teaching on it, an exhaustive teaching, really. Well, nothing can really be exhaustive, but uh, certainly uh, comprehensive. And the gospel is simply God's plan of salvation for uh, sinful man. 
When you look at many of the doctrines that we hold to as Christians, we, uh, in order to fully understand a particular subject, we go to perhaps several different books in the Bible in order to understand that subject fully or comprehensively. And so perhaps we'll go and uh, see something that God has spoken related to it in the book of Matthew, and then perhaps uh, to the book of Galatians, and then to the book of James, and then uh, to the book of Hebrews. And as we kind of uh, pull all of these things together from all the various different uh, places within the Bible that they're addressed, we now have a sense of this is uh, the mind of God, the revelation of God on this particular uh, subject. But here in the book of Romans concerning what is the most important subject in the world, excluding only God himself, the subject of our salvation, uh, Paul endeavored to put all of it in one place, in one book, uh, by the Holy Spirit, determined here to provide a very rich description, a full description of the gospel, of the means of our salvation, and then to provide uh, uh, us an absolute clarity on a subject in which there, there really, we can't afford to have any misunderstanding at all. The introductions, uh, introductions to Paul's epistles should never be viewed by us, uh, no matter how familiar they become to us, as kind of flyover territory uh, within the epistle, something that we give kind of a, a cursory attention to in order to then get to the bulk of the letter and, and, and the main meaning, uh, meaning behind and purpose behind uh, the letter. Uh, the fact of the matter is that these introductions always contain very, very uh, rich and, I think, priceless insights into the Christian life. And his introduction to Romans really goes from verse 1 through verse 17. We looked at verses 16 and 17 last week as an introduction to the entire book. And, but the 15 verses, there's simply too much content in that to cover it in one uh, sitting. And so we'll break it up into two weeks. And look at some of the gems that are found in here that are very important for us to understand as Christians. And uh, gems that... I consider to be, have been very, very important to me in my Christian life, and I know they are to you as well, and perhaps for some of you who are newer to the Bible or to the book of Romans, uh, I trust that they will uh, become important in your Christian life and service as well. The Apostle Paul identifies himself as the author uh, of the letter in the very first word of the letter. And uh, uh, there as he declares himself to be Paul and, and is the writer of the letter. Now today when we write a letter to someone, the structure is almost universally the same. We begin with dear so-and-so to identifying who we're writing to. We then follow it by some uh, greeting of some kind, I hope you are well. And then that's followed by the body of the letter, the main purpose for the letter that we're writing to the person. And then we close it up with some kind of a benediction, and then we sign our name uh, to that expression of love or goodwill toward the person that we're uh, writing to. And thus, as we would get a letter, any of us might get one in the mail as it's becoming increasingly obsolete with email. I don't know 40 years from now how people will introduce uh, letter writing in our culture, but uh, letters are, remain common enough in our culture that if we want to know who the letter came 
came from. We need to look at the envelope, or if they uh, remain unidentified uh, on the envelope, we simply open it up and turn to the last of the several pages, and we see there at the end, uh, there is the person that has written uh, the letter uh, to us. In Paul's day, the structure of a letter was uh, largely the same as ours today, except that the writer always identified himself or herself at the beginning of the letter rather than the end. And it was for a simple reason, a very practical reason, and that is that they wrote their letters on scrolls that would be rolled up. So to receive a letter on a scroll, and perhaps a lengthy letter as the book of Romans is, uh, you wouldn't want to have to scroll all the way through the scroll to find out at the end of it who wrote the letter. And so in the ancient world, they would simply identify themselves at the beginning of the letter. And in Paul's time, as, as we see it continually in his letters in the New Testament, uh, they contained uh, the same elements, uh, identification of who wrote the letter and then uh, who it was written to. There would always be a word of greeting, a personal aspect to the letter that Paul would write, and then it would be followed almost universally by some kind of expression of thanksgiving for the person that uh, he was writing the letter to, and then the body of the letter, and it would be closed then with a benediction and a, a conclusion. And so Paul follows this model uh, exactly here in the book of Romans. He begins the, uh, this introduction to them with a uh, threefold self-description uh, of himself. And he identifies himself to the church in Rome in three ways. He declares himself, as you see in verse 1, a to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He declares himself to be called to be an apostle and then separated to the gospel of God. Now, in beginning, I mean, you might be self-conscious in writing a letter about God and the things of God and beginning the letter with yourself, but it isn't egotism on Paul's part as he begins the letter with himself. It's just simply a means by which he is introducing himself to the church at Rome. Uh, you might remember that Paul, at the time that he writes this letter, he had never been to Rome. He did not know these people personally. This was the first correspondence or contact that he was going to have with them. So an introduction in this way would have been fully polite and very appreciated by the church uh, at at Rome. Who is this that is writing uh, to us? Probably the church at Rome was started one of two ways, uh, as perhaps on the day of Pentecost, in early in the book of Acts, when Peter got up on the day of Pentecost and he preached that famous sermon, uh, evangelistic sermon, uh, there in Jerusalem, 3,000 people were saved. It isn't unlikely that some of the Jewish pilgrims who heard that sermon and were saved, some of them were from Rome and went back to Rome and established a church. Uh, it's also possible that in the early church in Jerusalem, when the tremendous persecution was being meted out uh, against the church there in Jerusalem, Paul himself being kind of the leader of the whole thing, that his Jews, Christian Jews, were being uh, dispersed into the whole Roman world as a result of the persecution, that some of them also went to Rome, and perhaps the church was started uh, in that uh, way. When Paul describes himself uh, first as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the word that's used there for bondservant 
in your Bible there in verse 1 is the Greek word doulos, doulos. And that's a Greek word that I think every single Christian ought to know and ought to be familiar with. It should be a part of our vocabulary, doulos. Uh, repeat after me, doulos. There you go. Now, that wasn't so bad, was it? And, uh, and, and not only for our own thinking related to our own uh, Christianity, the word doulos, as it is in, in the original language, is much stronger, actually, than how it's translated in the New King James, which translates it uh, a bond servant. Uh, the word doulos uh, refers to someone who is not a bond servant. That puts a particular picture within our mind, but it is, actually means one who is a bond slave. Uh, Wiest in his excellent multi-volume uh, set word studies in the Greek New Testament, he defines doulos as this. He said, it is a slave, one who is in a permanent relations of servitude to another, his will being altogether consumed in the will of the other. Another Greek resource puts it this way. Doulos uh, it describes it as one who is devoted to another, to the disregard of his own interests. And both of those definitions are very, very uh, good in giving us the sense of the word. This word bondservant is a word that actually uh, has its roots in the imagery of the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaching concerning the law of bondservants, as it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, and then also Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 through 6. In the law of Moses, it, it uh, contained a, and in it God provided a very a benevolent means by which a Jew who had come into debt uh, with a fellow Jew, and perhaps the Jew has fallen into some kind of a misfortune, they've had some kind of an accident or a crop failure or a business reversal, uh, uh, and they would then uh, borrow money uh, from another Jewish brother uh, to, as a result of any kind of hardship that can come our way and put us in, in debt in the course of life, sometimes through no fault of our own. And so here he is, he's gone into debt to this other uh, uh, Jew, and he's borrowed money as a result uh, of that, and he's without the ability to repay that uh, debt. And the law of Moses allowed that that person who was the debtor could then sell himself into the service of his creditor for the purpose of now working off the debt, of satisfying the debt. This was a benevolent uh, thing in the law of Moses in that uh, it allowed the, uh, it, it, it was an option instead of then taking the debtor uh, to court or to throwing them into, as we've seen in human history in some parts of the world, throwing them into a debtor's prison as a result of their debt. And uh, to be thrown in a debtor's prison would almost always mean that, that not only the man, but the entire family would live in crushing poverty for the rest of their lives. This thing that God put, this law of, of the bondservant and the law of Moses, it allowed a, a family to stay intact. 
to then come into another family, uh, have food, have clothing, have shelter, and then spend however many months or weeks or years that it might be to then work off all of the debt. According to this uh, law of Moses, a fellow Jew could only be sold as a servant to another Jew for this purpose for a maximum of six years, after which they were to be set free. I mean, their, their debt was to be completely dismissed at that point in time. But something if, unique could happen in that seventh year. If in the seventh year, the Hebrew servant, the creditor, had come to love his master so much during the term of his servanthood that he didn't want to leave. But he looked at this master and he desired to be his servant for the rest of his life. In other words, he thought to himself in terms of the period of his uh, servitude, my master is so wonderful. It's such a pleasure to know him and to serve him and to be a part of his life. I know that I could never find a a circumstance in life better than the one that I have here. And when a servant felt that way uh, toward his master, he could, by virtue of a ceremony uh, that was to be performed, commit himself to a lifelong service to that master. The ceremony involved is described in the law of Moses where the servant would then be taken to the house of the master and he would be taken to the doorposts of the house, uh, of the door that led into the house. His earlobe would be put up against the doorpost and then an awl would be uh, placed against his earlobe and it would be pressed then uh, into uh, the doorpost. And, and that was uh, and, uh, and put through there. And it was, it's often presumed that an earring would then have been placed within the hole, though it isn't spoken of uh, directly in the Scriptures. But somehow this hole within the ear, and perhaps an earring associated with it, would then communicate to anyone who uh, subsequently came into contact with this man that that man is a bondservant. That man, his life is no longer his own. It no longer belongs to himself, but rather to his master. And everybody in the culture understood the three characteristics of a Jewish bondservant. And the characteristics were this. The motivation for becoming a bondservant was love. It was someone would become a bondservant to another out of the love that they had received from that master. It was also a commitment that was made that was voluntary. No one was ever forced to become a bondservant under the law of Moses. And then third, the term of the commitment was always for life. It was always a commitment for the rest of a person's uh, life. And this is the title that the Apostle Paul took to himself in order to describe to the church at Rome, but also to you and I this morning, to describe the quality of his commitment to serve the Lord in the Lord's call upon his life. And thus when he describes himself in this letter as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he is communicating to his readers and to us that this is the commitment to Jesus and to God's call upon his life that he is committed to him, motivated by his love for Jesus. 
He's been so good to me. I know that if I was freed from under his oversight and his lordship and was to go anywhere else in the world, I would never find a master so gracious, so good, so loving, such, so rich in character as I have found uh, in him. His dedication to the Lord was voluntary. It wasn't forced. It wasn't grudging. Paul is letting them know, I'm not an apostle. I'm not a Christian because this is something that I have to do or I'm forced to do. This is the joy of my life, and I do it voluntarily. And then he wanted them and us to know that this was a commitment that he had made uh, forever. This was for life in terms of uh, how he uh, viewed his commitment to the Lord. The Lord's been so good. Good to me as an act of my will, I choose to be his servant for all of the remaining days of my physical life. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul began his self description here in the way that he does. He didn't begin his description with the fact that he was an apostle. He didn't begin his description with the fact that he was a missionary, that he'd been on three missionary journeys, that he had planted churches all over uh, the Roman uh, world. But he began with the description as a bondservant. And he did so because this is who and what he was at his core. At the foundation of his life, his Christian life, and his ministry, he was first and foremost, before he was anything else, he was a bondservant in this relationship with God. His self-identity wasn't supremely in his ministry or his apostleship or his calling or his doing or his works, but rather in terms of the relationship that he had with Jesus and how he viewed now both Jesus and himself in that relationship. And Paul is communicating to us this morning in this verse 1 that if you want to know anything about me, in terms of what makes me tick, in terms of the explanation for my life, in terms of the incredible effectiveness and fruitfulness of my Christian life and my ministry, it is simply found in this, that I love God and that he is my Lord and I am in a servant relationship with him and that I am glad to have it so. I have chosen to become his servant, not because I've been constrained to or forced to. It's entirely voluntary. I do so as an act of my will, and I do so with a sense of privilege. And that this commitment that I have made to serve God out of this motivation of love, it is lifelong. I will never move from it by the grace of God. And here we have a commitment to God that is so refreshing. And how strong it is, how vigorous it is, how muscular it is, how robust it is. And the interesting thing about it is it is the same kind of commitment to God that Jesus himself calls each and every one of us as Christians uh, to have. Jesus declared in Mark chapter 10, and whoever of you desires to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life, uh, to be served rather, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when he talks about us being servants or being a slave, 
Jesus once again uses the word doulos. It is the commitment of a Christian who understands that our lives, having been purchased by God, now belong to God. Not 50%, not 20%, not 80%, not 95%. But they belong to God 100% and that God can use his life, any, uh, uh, use our lives any way that he chooses to. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said in this vein, he said, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are are God's. And the realization is we look at God and his salvation of us, the same realization that Paul had, is that if I didn't become uh, the servant of Jesus, the servant of the God of the Bible, I can certainly speak for myself and probably for a good number of us in this room that I'd have thrown my life away a thousand different ways. The sense of the privilege of being a bondservant of Christ, that he would allow us to be a bondservant, to remain with him, that he would have a call upon our lives, something to do. But one of the things about this word doulos, bondservant, that has helped me through the years so much, and I I mention it because perhaps it will help you even this morning, but maybe in the future as well. It isn't something groundbreaking or dramatic. But maybe you've noticed that many times in the capacity of a doulos of the Lord that he calls us to do things that we would never otherwise do. We would never do them for another person. We wouldn't even do them for ourselves. But we will do them for him. And I think that any of us in whatever God's call is upon our lives, always our Christian service will ultimately go to that place where God will call us to do something and we'll say, God, I wouldn't do it for another person. I wouldn't do it for myself, but I will do it for you. And then the realization behind all of it that God owns my life and he can use my life any way that he sees fit. That's the commitment that I've made to him, that we've made to him. We are a bondservant. So at that moment when I have that tendency to want to go into self-pity or I want to feel like this is something that uh, I don't want to allow God to do within my life. This isn't the plan that I have for my life and yet God calls me to do it. That reminder of the fact that I am a doulos in this relationship and that the time of my salvation, I was happy at that point in time that he would take me on as his servant and I made him my master by virtue of a love for him in response to the love that he had for me. I did it voluntarily. I made a commitment for life. And then the funny thing that happens when we're Christians for years and then we become Christians for decades is pretty soon we forget about that commitment we made at the beginning as a doulos And we begin to take our life back brick by brick brick and board by board. And then he can begin to find resistance on our part to treating us like a doulos and and resistance on our part toward uh, that relationship that we were so happy to enter into at one time in our life, thrilled to enter into. And the reminder, as Paul gave here, all the way through his long life of ministry, is he never forgot that fact 
that I am a doulos. He is the master. I am the servant in this relationship. And he can spend my life any way that he wants to. And Paul, for sure, with the knowledge in his life, that he would have thrown his life away any number of ways, even within a religious realm, had it not been for the fact that he was able to enter into this relationship by virtue of the grace of God. And I say all of that, not merely to say this, but to say this as well that if you sit here this morning as a Christian and under the weight of this great truth concerning the doulos, the bond slave, if in the privacy of your own heart this morning you know that you are not a bondservant of Jesus, but you know, and I don't say it to accuse anyone or to poke anyone in the eye, but it needs to be said or we will uh, waste the the time of meditation upon the word, to just simply move on and say, well, this was true of Paul, and it doesn't matter if it's true of our lives. But to allow the Holy Spirit to search us this morning, and perhaps if you sit here this morning and you know yourself to be backslidden, fully backslidden, nobody can tell looking at you at the outward. The Bible talks about the backslider in heart. We know how to keep it a secret. Or if you're lukewarm in your relationship with the Lord, or your relationship with God is almost completely on your terms. You have things completely upside down in this relationship. You have yourself as the master and him as the servant. You have forgotten the two great rules, the two great truths of the universe, that there is a God and you're not him. And you've gotten that all upside down in the course of, of your Christian life. And you know this morning that you are not a servant. The truth were made known. You are the master in this relationship. Your entire Christian life is lived on your terms. Why not this morning make the decision in the privacy of your own heart to determine not to go to the car that you arrived in this morning without, uh, until you have become a bondservant of Jesus this morning, to do that right now in the privacy of your own heart where you're seated and to say to God, Lord, I love you and you've been nothing but good to me. I know that and I know that I could search the whole world over and not find a better master to be a servant to. None so good, none so true as you've been to me. And so this morning with a heart of love to you, with a desire to honor you, with the position that you deserve within my life, I commit to living the rest of my life as your bond uh, servant. I don't know about you, but this reminder that I am a bond servant, that I am a doulos, it does something good. It does something strong within my life as a Christian. It, it steers me away from this kind of a flabby uh, Christianity, uh, weak Christianity that my flesh is prone to race to and is all around us, and, and instead to this strong, robust, muscular Christianity that we see in Paul and we see in the Bible. We notice that Paul further declared himself to be called to an apostle. 
And that uh, communicates a couple of important things to us this morning. First, as we look at the word apostle, it means one who is sent with authority. That's what an apostle uh, was. But it communicates to us at the outset of the letter that Paul wrote this letter uh, not as a letter from a friend to a friend, but that he's writing it with apostolic uh, authority, that, and the, the letter is to be uh, received as inspired by the Holy Spirit, and thus it is to be heeded and to be obeyed. You notice that second word that he speaks, not only that he's an apostle, but that he's called to be an apostle. And this reveals to us that he had been called by God to be an apostle. And uh, and that's how he got initiated into the calling. God had initiated this call upon his life. Paul had not grown up and then at some point in his Christian life decided that, you know, where's the correspondence course that I can take in order to become an apostle? That was something that God had called him uh, to do. And the imagery, again, takes us back to those passages in the law of Moses concerning the doulos. And so picture in your mind a line of ten bondservants in front uh, of their uh, master. And the master then, as he looks at the ten, he calls the one out of the line and says to him, I want you to accomplish uh, this for me today, or I want you to spend the rest of your life in this particular capacity within uh, my kingdom, within uh, my uh, reign. And the master, morning by morning, or at once a point in time in their life, he initiated the calling, the doulos obeyed the calling. And when Paul put himself upon being saved into that line of douloses, God simply looked at him and pointed to him and said, this is the call that I put upon your life as my doulos. I put a call upon you to be an apostle. And Paul then spent the rest of his life in that capacity. But God does the same thing in each and every one of our lives as Christians. He specifically calls us to spend our lives as an influence for him and the kingdom of God in all kinds of places in life. If you live in the neighborhood that you live in and you have a peace about living there, that you are in God's will living there, then you've been placed by God in that neighborhood. The same thing is true of a school or a workplace uh, or, or a church or wherever it might be. God calls us in all these different areas of our life, and he places us strategically as a master with a bond servant. Paul then, in his third aspect of his self-description, he described himself as being separated to the gospel of God, the ministry of preaching the gospel to the world and, and advancing the gospel in the world. And that's a call that's upon our lives as well. And then because the gospel, God's plan of salvation for sinful man is centered upon Jesus Paul then moves on in his introduction, and he gives us a threefold description of Jesus in verses 2, 3, and 4. Uh, sometimes it's interesting to me uh, as a Christian, and as a Christian, I'm not just a pastor, but I'm an observer in the body of Christ. I hear a lot of things and being said, a lot of things being taught, a lot of ways that Christianity is represented and so forth. And my antennas are up. I'm always trying to learn as a Christian and learn as a pastor. But it's interesting, there's a section of the body of Christ 
that talks about the gospel and the gospel and the gospel and the gospel this and the gospel that and being faithful to the gospel and the gospel accomplishing this and so forth and so forth. And I would listen to it for a long, long time, for a number of years, and I just remember it dawning upon me, you know, every time they say gospel, uh, that's where I would say Jesus, or that's where I would say the Holy Spirit. And somehow there's such a focus upon the gospel that there is a forgetting that behind the gospel is a Jesus. There is a Holy Spirit behind it. It's kind of like when you, as God speaks about the fact that when you see the, uh, the creation, there's the realization that there's a creator behind it. And that the, the uh, creator is greater than the creation. And what is true in a physical realm is true in a spiritual realm. The gospel is a wonderful thing. It is a priceless thing. But it is not the focus of our Christianity. It is something that is, has come into being by virtue of a creator. And the creator, the provider of the gospel is always greater than the gospel itself. And so Jesus is to be the focus in all of this. And Paul demonstrates it for us here as he immediately, in speaking of the gospel, goes to describe Jesus himself before he ever describes the gospel. And we notice that as he describes uh, Jesus here, uh, there there is the first, he declares in verse 2, that Jesus is attested to by the Old Testament scriptures. And that in the Old Testament scriptures, they they declared that the gospel was to be provided to the world by a person who was the Messiah. It was to be provided in the person of a Savior. And that the Savior would come into the world, but he would not come into the world unaccompanied. He would come into the world and attached with him would be this long prophetic description of the Messiah from the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament scriptures do speak of uh, Jesus as the Messiah uh, and how the Old Testament prophets spoke in that regard, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, uh, Micah, that he would be born of, uh, as of a virgin, Genesis and Isaiah, that he would be born of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Genesis once again, that he would die by means of crucifixion, but not for his own sins, but for the sins of sinful man, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. And as you well know, on and on and on we could go in describing the over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. But as you're also very well aware, if you've been here longer than six weeks, that we just did that recently in uh, uh, concluding our study uh, of the book of Acts. And so because we've done that, I won't do it again. But what is important for us to see here is that Paul does the very same thing concerning the prophetic witness to Jesus as the Messiah that Peter did in his epistles as well. And that he is trying to take their faith and and the the faith of the Christians there in the church at Rome and our faith as well. And he's seeking to found our faith upon Jesus as the promised Messiah and the Savior of the world upon the surest thing that exists in the entire world and that is upon the scriptures themselves. The, wis- uh, the witness of the Old Testament scriptures to Jesus' claim to be Messiah uh, 
are intended to be a very significant uh, impact uh, upon each of us as Christians. There's a fascinating passage in the Old Testament book of Isaiah where the children of Israel on a practical level at this point in time in their uh, history, uh, they uh, outwardly they are worshiping God at the temple and so forth, but in their hearts and privately they've given themselves entirely to the worship of false gods and to uh, uh, idols almost uh, entirely. And God then, in the midst of this idolatry, he challenged the children of Israel to then put their gods to a test, to determine whether these idols that they were worshiping, these false gods that they were worshiping, was worthy of their adoration, worthy of their worship. And he put the test this way in Isaiah chapter 41. God said through Isaiah, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. And let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show us the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us the things to come. Show the things which are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and see it all together. And then he declared concerning these idols, indeed you are nothing and your work is nothing and he who chooses you is an abomination. The fascinating thing is that God calls upon the children of Israel to put their idols, to put their God, to put their object of worship uh, to a test, a test that was twofold. First, he called upon them to put their idols to the test that they would uh, bring forth and show us what will happen. In other words, make sure that the thing that you worship in life, that you think that you've made the master of your life is able to declare the future uh, to us ahead of time. In other words, any God worth worshiping, uh, worth trusting my life to, my eternity to, ought to be able to predict the future with 100% accuracy. And God was saying to the children of Israel, any God who cannot do that is not worthy of being your God. It's not worthy of being worshiped. The second part of that twofold sifting of, in terms of testing these gods and idols, God called upon the idols to show the former things that we may consider them uh, th- what they were that we may consider them. In other words, the idols and anything that we make the object of our worship f- should have an answer for the great questions in life concerning mankind's past. To tell us, in other words, how did we get here? How did the heavens and the earth come into being? Why are we the way that we are, sinful? How did that happen? Why do people die? What is the origin of death? And so forth. And what God was speaking to his people in the Old Testament was that if a God cannot answer the great uh, questions of, of, uh, in, in man's hearts concerning the former things, then how in the world can we trust them to be correct about how we're to live now? If they can't tell us how all of this came into being, the heavens and the earth that we're surrounded with, they can't explain the fact for our own existence, for our own sinful condition. They can't declare to us uh, why it is that death exists, what's its origin. If they can't explain these things to us, 
then if a God does not and cannot provide revelation in that realm, then why in the world would I trust that God to speak into my life present tense? And why would I then trust in that God or that idol to speak to me authoritatively about eternity, about heaven, about hell, about judgment, about what happens uh, after death? And and the Lord in the Old Testament is really encouraging a healthy skepticism among his people concerning these idols. If they cannot show us the former things, then they're not worthy of uh, of, uh, our worship or our trust. And then when we look at those two great tests that God calls on each and every one of us to put to concerning the great object of our worship. And that can be things, that can be ourselves, that can be uh, relationships. Only the God of the Bible in all of human history has passed that test. Nothing in the entire world satisfies the questions concerning the former things, the great questions in life, and God's record of man's creation and his fall and his redemption, as it's described in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And as to speaking prophetically of things to come with 100% accuracy, fully a third of the Bible uh, constituted prophecy at the time that uh, it was written and given by God, speaking of the future. And God has supplied us with ample opportunity to test him in this regard. And it is a test that he passes perfectly and never more so than in in describing to us the coming of Messiah, the coming of Jesus, as Paul references here. Jesus is the Old Testament scriptures as Paul gives his threefold description of Jesus. He is uh, first. uh, The Old Testament scriptures attest to the fact that he is the Messiah. Second, Paul described in verse 3, he declared Jesus to be born the seed of David according to the flesh. And what Paul is declaring here is very, very interesting and very important. Because what Paul is doing is he is emphasizing the humanity of Jesus, that he was born into the world, fully man, and he was born as a descendant, a physical descendant of King David, which then raises the question within our minds so often, and that is, why was it important for Jesus to be born fully human? The Bible teaches him to be both uh, fully God and fully man all at the same time. Why was it important that Jesus be fully human? And the one single great answer to that question is in order to die, in order to die for our sins. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus became a man in order to be able to experience death for the very purpose of dying, so that he could die for our sins. As divine, he cannot die. He could not die. He needed to become a man in order to do so. Our salvation required his incarnation, that he be born into the world fully man. 
Colossians chapter 1, Paul writing again, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he, that is God, has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, speaking of Jesus, to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. And so Paul emphasizes in his, in his description of Jesus, and very importantly, the humanity of Christ. But he doesn't stop there. That's just part of the picture. You notice in verse 4 that the third part of the description of Jesus that Paul lays out here is he declared Jesus to be the Son of God, that he is divine, that he is not only the Son of God, but that he is God the Son as is testified to, as Paul declares, by the Scriptures, by his holy life, by the resurrection. Now, sometimes people will ask the question concerning uh, Jesus, and it's an outstanding question. Isn't it enough that I believe Jesus to be a good person, uh, to be a great teacher, or to be a great example Uh, Why must I believe in his deity? Isn't it sufficient that I uh, give him that kind of prominence in, in human history? And the answer is no, because if that's all that he was, then according to the Bible, our sin problem would remain unresolved because the person who is merely a good person or a great teacher or a great example isn't qualified to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. It is because Jesus is divine that he is also sinless. And the sinlessness of Jesus is essential to our salvation because a sinner cannot be the savior of sinners. He would need a savior himself. In the same way that a drowning man cannot save another drowning person, he would need someone to save him himself. It it was Jesus' sinlessness that qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter put it this way in his first epistle, chapter 1 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, the problem is, is if you take away his deity, then you take away his sinlessness. And if you take away his sinlessness, you're left with a Savior who cannot save sinners. He cannot save anyone. It is his deity that uniquely qualifies him to provide us with salvation. Again, the writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way, God who at various times and in different ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of the glory of the express and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
And Jesus certainly understood all of this concerning himself when he declared to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, John chapter 8, verse 24, and therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, and he takes the name of God and he ascribes it to himself, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And they rejected his deity, but only a divine Savior can provide the forgiveness of sins. What an introduction to this letter Paul gives us. Amazing truths that are found here. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, and because he was that, uniquely qualified to provide us with salvation, and wonderfully so. It's funny, you watch people all the way, liberal Christianity or people in their own minds, and the world is certainly guilty of this, and they don't like some aspect of Jesus as he's described in the scriptures or, uh, and so forth. And so we're going to tweak him. We're going to improve upon him. We're going to make him a great man, but not the son of God. Or we're going to, uh, you know, and all these attempts to improve him, make him more palatable. And, uh, and I, remember, I remember a commercial when I was a kid. I don't know, remember what the product was. But the warning was, you know, it's not nice to, you know, fool mother. Mother Nature or mess around with Mother Nature. Well, there is no Mother Nature, and it's not very smart to describe with the, descript the description of Jesus as he's found in the Scriptures. He is exactly the Savior that we need. And what a wonderful thing it is this morning to stop and to give consideration to just this little window of who he is and what he is. What a privilege it is to be his bondservant this morning and the life that is ours as a result of it. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we pray for one another and just the simplicity of this room that we're in. It's a church building, but it's a big living room. And you are present, and everything is open and naked before you with whom we have to do. And Lord, we pray for each man and woman that stands before you now. And we ask, Lord, if there is a single one of us that is backslidden in heart, or lukewarm in our relationship with you, or we're in the driver's seat in our relationship with you, Lord, and we're far away from what Paul describes here, being a bondservant to you. We pray that you would turn each one uh, to you this morning and to the glory of that life, this first thing that Paul boasts in concerning his life. And Lord, all of us this morning, we thank you for the privilege of being a bondservant, Lord. We would have thrown our lives away a thousand different ways, following a thousand different masters, and been badly injured by this point in our life unless we had come to know you, and that you in your grace, Lord, and in your love found a place not only to save us, but to bring us in this relationship in which you are the master and we are the servant. 
Lord, we pray for any men or women that stand before you this morning under the, the weight of your teaching this morning that are really um, uh, struggling or kind of resisting what it is that you've called them to do or the difficulty of the trial that you have led them into and their eyes can't see the glory of what is happening and the perfection and the purifying of their faith. All they know is that it's hard and they want to escape it with all of their might. Lord, we pray that this reminder that they are a bondservant will keep them in exactly that relationship and allow your glorious work in this season of their life to continue. And Lord, this morning we thank you for your provision to us of your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is Messiah based upon the description of the Old Testament and upon him being fully man and fully God. And we thank you for how he is uniquely qualified as Messiah on the basis of those things. But this morning, Lord, we thank you on top of that for the grace, Lord, and the love that marks his life as well in his willingness to come into this world in order to provide us with a gospel and a good news to overwhelm our past and our present and our future. We bless you this morning for our Savior, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.